Hi, everybody. This is Crystal Martinez Acosta. Welcome to Through the Eyes of a Therapist, the podcast that's all about mental health. Through the eyes of a therapist, everything is related to mental health. I want to welcome you if this is the first time that you're listening to this podcast. My guest today is Major Amelia Davis. She's a licensed counseling psychologist and is currently serving on active duty in the United States Air Force. She completed her PhD at New Mexico State University, and her clinical work emphasizes evidence-based practice, trauma treatment, prevention, cross-cultural psychology, and organizational consultation. Major Davis has led two mental health clinics, a substance abuse clinic, a family treatment program, and a base-wide suicide prevention program. She has also deployed to several countries in support of Operation Inherent Resolve, Operation Freedom Sentinel, and the Global War on Terror. All right, so on the line right now, I am with Major Amelia Davis. How about you talk a little bit about yourself? All right. Hi, Crystal. Hello. <laughs> so, very, very excited to be here today. Um, like you said, I'm, I'm serving on active duty in the U.S. Air Force as a psychologist. It's been an awesome and rewarding opportunity. I had a chance to serve in a couple pretty unique capacities and am, again, very enthusiastic about talking to you about this subject in general and in speaking to you, not just kind of some of the mental health uh issues or topics pertinent to working in the military, but also about how folks who may or may not be related with the military or, or working with veterans at all can maybe get a little bit more informed or more involved. So happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming on to the interview. And I am really privileged to know you, I think, because I was just <laughs> talking to you right now before we started recording that I'm like, I really need to interview somebody who's in the military, but then also who can answer questions about mental health and stigma and stuff like that. And I'm like, Amelia is the perfect combination because she's like <laughs> part psychologist, part military member. And so I, I'm really excited to talk to you about this topic. Yeah, totally. So can you talk a little bit about kind of your path and what you know, your profession is right now and kind of what has led you there? Sure. So um, I've always kind of toyed around with the idea of serving in the military and it's always been interesting to me. And, uh, you know, I was one of those kids who, you know, started high school and September 11th happened. And it's like, oh my goodness, uh, the world kind of got thrust into this whole different scenario. And so I started taking things like military service a lot more seriously. Um, mental health came a little bit later. Uh, college, you know, like most of us do, figuring out what you want to do when you grow up. Uh, learned about social work and about psychology and felt like that was a good fit for me. Once I found out that the military employs psychologists uh, on active duty and that they can serve and they can deploy and do the, all these cool things, on top of that, they have these really nice programs to help offset tuition costs and things like that, you know, incentivize folks coming in to learn a trade and practice healthcare within the military. So even better, <laughs> uh, that was pretty attractive as well. So That's awesome. Yeah. It sounds <laughs> totally. like it all kind of fell into place. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I ended up getting a health profession scholarship program through the Air Force. So it like bought out my two years of or 
last few years of my doctorate. So I got to just kind of focus on school, um, did my internship with the Air Force, and uh, after that came on active duty and started practicing as a psychologist. So yeah, it was good. Well, I mean, it's important to understand that we grew up in the generation. I say we because I think we're around the same age. I might, I don't know. (laughs) We're not going to talk about ages, but I think I was in high school also when 9-11 happened. And so that was real serious. And I can remember that that kind of shaped culture for a lot of people. And it influenced at least the people that I sort of know that have that had gone into the military, including one of the other guests that I've had on the podcast, he served in the Navy and he was inspired by 9-11 as well. But it sounds like your path took kind of like also a social work kind of turn. So you saw that the two fit together and then you were like, hey, I'm going to do that. As you have been practicing in the military, can you talk a little bit about what you do for your job? Like what's kind of like a regular day in Major Davis's life? One of uh, my favorite things about being an active duty psychologist is that it almost feels like there kind of is no average day. We have a a very uh, wide ranging set of roles that we can fulfill. And so, you know, what I do this week might be totally different than what I do next week. Commissioned officers, uh, most of us start around the rank of captain. We're in charge of uh, leading teams. So not just providing healthcare, but leading, you know, technicians, medics who also provide different types of health services as well. So a lot of my experience has been in clinic management, administration, program management. Uh, You know, when I'm in more of a, a clinical role, uh, where I'm primarily seeing patients. I might see several folks a day, go to a few program meetings, prevention meetings, do some outreach briefings, things like that. And then um, when I'm in more of a leadership role, I spend more time kind of supervising my team, training my team, making sure that everybody on staff has what they need and doing the day-to-day of how to basically run a clinic or a prevention program. And then the military also has quite a bit of like prevention and outreach services. So there's really no typical day, which for me is a great fit. <laughs> I like that I can kind of slide up down the spectrum of psychological capabilities and, and perform whatever is. That sounds awesome. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool because it's not just like clinical work, it's also administrative work, program management, but then also. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you have to use your knowledge and expertise in psychology to help consult on things that have happened, right? So like... Yeah, all different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's so cool. Oh my God. Wow. I'm a little jelly. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> that's really yeah. cool. Thank you for introducing yourself and thank you for explaining what you do on a day-to-day basis and talking about how you arrived at your career. Can you give us a little more information about... Uh, the services that you provide and um, I guess kind of what it's like to be a clinician and somebody who provides services to the military. Uh, So just like any career or workplace uh, in any really setting, um, the military presents a unique set of challenges that we all kind of work through and manage. I mean, it's an all-volunteer force. We all signed up for it and understood some part of it, but that doesn't mean that we don't go through life's ups and downs like everybody else. Um, So in particular, some kind of recurrent themes that I've seen come up, folks, involve a few common, like, contexts. So work pace, uh, how often we maybe have to deploy or go on 
different temporary duties, kind of like business trips, uh, different trainings, how many hours we have to work, what shifts we have to work, can cause some disruptions or just discomfort uh, depending on the person and what they're doing. So that can sometimes be a concern. Uh, geographic separation from your loved ones could be a concern. Um, and then other things that folks might might more maybe readily associate with the military. So definitely trauma exposure on deployments or otherwise uh, is, is a concern within the military. Physically rigorous work can take its toll um, if not managed well. And then again, a normal life kind of ups and downs that we all experience are there too. So given that context, I've had the chance to provide a, a pretty wide range of either provide myself or oversee the provision of services that kind of address all those different things. So I've worked in a couple, I guess, different settings. The first one would be a mental health clinic, so your standard specialty behavioral health service that's like your, your common mental health clinic where you do typical therapy, evaluation, testing, assessment, all of that stuff. Um, whether it's individuals, couples, families, groups, all of those things would get managed in that setting. Uh, the military, depending on where you're stationed, will have different access to like different levels of care. Most bases will at least have outpatient services. Some of them have things like intensive outpatient, partial hospitalization, and even inpatient, which is pretty nice to have all within one healthcare system. Um, I've also had the opportunity to oversee alcohol and substance abuse counseling and prevention services. It's been pretty neat. Uh, again, that's something that we manage um, in-house. want to make sure that folks are taken care of. Uh, if they notice that they're having difficulties coping with, again, those normal ups and downs and substances become a way to cope with that, then we have ways to treat them and make sure that they're good to go and get back to uh, fit to fight is the phrase we usually uh, <laughs> kind of throw out there. Make sure that they can overcome the challenge that they're encountering with uh, substances and, and get back out there. And then the third type of clinic I've had the chance to uh, oversee and, and lead has been what we call a family advocacy program. So it's a way to, I guess, reach out to and take care of the whole family, not just the service member, him or herself. So we do a lot of like family therapy, couples therapy for sure, and then also um, investigate and address any um, potential like abuse or maltreatment, neglect type allegations, um, make sure that that's handled as well. So that's a pretty, in general, those three are the most common. Yeah. So you're saying that it depends on where you're stationed, but can you talk about some of the resources that are available to service members, including veterans and their families? Yeah, definitely. So those three in some way, so the general specialty mental health, your substance use and family services are going to be available in some way at pretty much everywhere you're stationed throughout the world, which is great. Um, and then we have some other, like really honestly, there are so many types of services available. It's a pretty rewarding system to be a part of. There's suicide prevention programs in every branch of the military, as well as the VA. You've got your substance use outreach programs, family wellness outreach programs. Um, there are specific screenings and services that we provide pre- and post-deployment to make sure that we um, assist with things like pre-trauma exposure preparation, 
Yeah, family separation, right? So um, as much as someone might look forward to deployment, the idea of being away from your loved ones for six months or more can sometimes be pretty difficult. So we yeah, try to make sense. sure that folks are, yeah, so we try to make folks sure that folks and their families are aware of ways that they can keep in contact with each other um, and how they can be supported on both ends, both in the deployed environment and back home. Um, yeah, so that's that's there. Um, and then it really goes up from there. So it, it spans the whole spectrum, again, from prevention to intervention. So we've got this program called the Military Family Life Consultants. They're uh, licensed providers, sometimes uh, LPCs, LMFTs, social workers, it really depends. But they work, again, on every uh, Department of Defense installation, and they provide what we call uh, consultation. So um, initial kind of low-level counseling for um, concerns that are initially presenting. So maybe uh, a really uh, common, like, couples-related issue regarding communication or um, a very initial issue with sleep or stress, things like that, that don't necessarily warrant a clinical diagnosis, but, you know, would be nice to talk to somebody about. Uh, They provide that service there, and um, since it's not, quote-unquote, medical care, it's also not documented in the medical records. So that feels like a a safer place for folks to disclose, um, especially if they feel uncomfortable Um, going to the clinic, that sort of thing. That's an interesting point to bring up because I think that's something Mm -hmm. I've heard of. So we have a base here in El Paso, Texas called Fort Bliss. Mm -hmm. And so there are times where I do have uh, military members or their families come in for counseling. Uh, What's interesting are there's two things that interest me about that. So one is that I guess there is a certain type of insurance that military members have that not every provider can take that's outside of yeah. the military and so oh, wow. that can pose a huge problem as far as like uh being delayed uh for receiving services and things like that so that's one thing but then uh yeah. the thing i want to address is something that you mentioned right now so confidentiality and i know that I I guess I went Mm -hmm. off on the tangent to explain that I have had exposure to some (laughs) soldiers or family members that don't want to disclose certain things because they're a little bit afraid about what will be said to their higher ups or um, what will be communicated to the military or their job. And so I didn't quite understand that. Can you explain that a little more? Yeah, so the biggest thing I'd want to emphasize is that service members retain their civil rights and their protections under both HIPAA and the Privacy Act when they seek healthcare services in the military. So whether they're working with their primary care provider or in some sort of specialty mental health setting, they still are protected under those uh, federal acts, if you will. Um, Where folks get sometimes concerned is on what's called HIPAA's military exception. Um, And basically what that says is most providers, we focus on any uh, concerns related to risk of harm to self or risk of harm to others and how those might warrant us, uh, quote unquote, breaking confidentiality to make sure that folks are kept safe. The military exception uh, adds something called uh, risk of harm to mission under that same uh, 
kind of need to break confidentiality, so to speak. Uh, so what that means is if something in the context of therapy looks like it might um, either severely impact the service member based on his or her like primary duties, or if something that the service member is going through or struggling with, what have you, maybe even a medication they're taking at the time, might make it difficult for him or her to perform certain aspects of their duties then that would need to be disclosed um, to those with need to know, which is almost exclusively their direct commander. So it's, it's specifically written in HIPAA's language as the military commander. So it's not like to, you know, their friends or people in the hallway. Um, we have to disclose the minimum information necessary just to mitigate the risks of the mission, just like we would for risk of harm to self or risk of harm to others. Um, so, again, I think when folks hear about it, it's kind of a big, scary thing that makes it seem like anything I tell my therapist is going to be told to my commander that doesn't happen that would be illegal um, it's just like every other confidentiality protection that we have um, we just if that rare circumstance occurs that we need to keep the person we're working with safe we will make sure that his or her commander is notified of the minimum amount necessary to take whatever safety precautions are indicated can you give an example of what the minimum amount of information necessary is? Would it be like diagnosis or you said medication? Yeah, sometimes. So uh, it, it depends. Again, kind of like risk of harm to self or risk of harm to others. So it's not like in order to make sure that, let's say someone started a trial of just as an example of Ambien, and we're not sure, like they've never taken it before, we're not sure how it's going to impact them during the day. Um, so we might initiate a brief restriction, call their commander and say, hey, we don't want this person um, necessarily operating heavy machinery or um, you know, working this type of work shift um, while they're testing a, a medication to see how it impacts them. So you know, we haven't necessarily disclosed diagnosis. We haven't said like, you know, uh, at age 13, here's what happened in this person's life. <laughs> it's not that, that level of information. It's really just the basics that the commander needs to know of like what the potential risk to the mission might be. Okay. They might fall asleep while driving a bulldozer. That's bad. Um, and okay. I recommend that you maybe not have this person drive bulldozers for the next 14 days while we figure out how this medication impacts them, um, just as an example. Now, of course, that's not something that happens all the time when someone starts Ambien, but it is case by case, and it is, again, from a legal perspective, it's required to be that minimum um, necessary need-to-know information. Awesome. Thanks for that example. I think that will clear up a lot of confusion and possibly even fear or hesitation to seek services. Yeah. I, I understand that the military has its own culture. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how service providers that are not part of the military um, or that don't work maybe on a base, um, how can we support um, efforts to increase awareness around mental health or um, 
you know, increase our efforts to reach people uh, that need treatment? Uh, I think cultural competence is is really important. This population is only growing, right? We only have more people who are serving and deploying and getting, you know, really intense, um, long-ranging service experiences. So it's it's growing in terms of importance for all types of healthcare providers, mental health providers especially, to really have some working knowledge of this group and some commonalities in their experience. There are several resources for improving cultural competence that, you know, don't involve you necessarily having to, like, put on the uniform yourself, although you can if you want to, obviously. (laughs) But, um, you know, even, like, continuing education courses that can be taken for free online. I can send you a link if you want to put a link with the podcast with that. Um, But little things that can be done to get knowledgeable about working with this community uh, conversational about certain topics like deployment, like confidentiality, like TRICARE, the insurance, you know, um, that can help you to more readily identify concerns uh, with the folks that you serve. So when it comes to something like stigma or improving help seeking, I really believe that every individual encounter, every you know, session in our office or prevention and outreach kind of activity that we engage in, each of those is an opportunity to improve the way that people perceive mental health and mental health care. And so when it comes to working with service members or veterans in particular, just like other specialty communities, so to speak, that we work with, when you take the time to get more training and more knowledge about how to with them, uh, a little bit more conversational about some of their normal experiences and things like that, you're demonstrating you've put in your due diligence, you genuinely care about the community, and inherently by doing that, you are also improving your quality of care, thus mitigating stigma. So again, whether you're affiliated with the military directly or not, that is the role that each one of us as providers plays in making sure that no one feels like um, they should feel stigmatized or um, de-incentivized about seeking uh, care. That, I think, is like the most important message ever on earth to every therapist, um, no matter what population you're working with. But um, I know that especially with this community, it's really, really, really important. Um, And I think it's becoming more public. It's not that it wasn't important before. It's just that now I think um, people are more aware of it. Um, Yeah, and it's, it's having impact on on maybe our family members more directly or communities more directly. And so it's something I think that people are paying attention to now. And so I think it would be kind of a disservice if therapists ignored that or didn't, you know, read up on. Can you talk to us a little bit more about any special programs or initiatives that the Department of Defense has to promote the well-being of service members and their families? Yeah, there are so many. Like, we could spend a whole podcast episode on this alone, which is pretty cool and rewarding. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, that's Department a good Defense thing. The, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the Department of Defense and the VA are kind of like the the country's most, like, robust and comprehensive EAPs, right, Employee Assistance Program. <laughs> like, so there's a lot out there. Um, but the 
I guess there are three that come to mind um, that really kind of highlight how important overall wellness and mental health in particular are to the Department of Defense and the VA. So the uh, primary care consultation initiatives, the VA's coaching in the care program, and Special Operations Command's uh, POTIF program are, are the three um, that come to mind for me currently. So starting with primary care consultation, I think this is something that's been in vogue, so to speak, lately in the last like decade or so. You know, we know a lot of folks initially when they encounter a behavioral health uh, type concern will present to their primary care providers before they consider um, going to someone like specialty mental health. So a lot of places have been pushing specially trained mental health clinicians into primary care roles so that we can intervene early and often, right? That's great. Um, Yeah, so the DOD is absolutely doing that as well. The Air Force's program in that regard is called the uh, Behavioral Health Optimization Program, or BHOP, because there's an acronym for everything with us, and uh, it's it's great. So we'll have you know a team of it could be psychologists, social workers, nurses, other types of providers um, embedded in this little kind of clinic within a clinic um, inside primary care. So let's say you go to your physician and you've had difficulty sleeping, Um, not only will you get recommendations from a physical standpoint from your physician, uh, he or she might actually walk you down to talk to a BHOP provider and get the behavioral component of that as well. So, you know, go over sleep hygiene and stimulus control and ways to use medication to augment those habit changes, all that stuff. So um, really like the BHOP program um, and excited that we are including that so that we catch things again earlier than waiting for someone to come into mental health. Uh, The other kind of nice byproduct of having it in primary care is, again, stigma reduction, right? So if I go to primary care and I happen to talk about mental health stuff with a mental health provider, I'm getting accommodated to it, which is good. It's a good thing. Um, The second one is actually not a DOD program. It's run by the Veterans Health Administration, and I just found out about it recently, and I think it's amazing. So the VA Coaching into Care program is a resource available to folks who have veterans in their family, um, veterans that they care about, who they feel like might benefit from different types of uh, mental health support services, let's say. Um, But maybe that veteran is not super amenable to treatment. (laughs) So they do these really cool psychoeducational kind of coaching services, usually at a distance, usually via phone, um, sometimes in person, with that uh, veteran's loved one or you know, a friend, whomever, to talk to them about ways to encourage the veteran to seek care. So it's this awesome, again, like psychoeducational, almost motivational interviewing-based strategy all about making sure that someone's community, someone's family wraps around them and helps them get the support they need. That is so awesome. Um, I just had an episode about, yeah, like how to help someone or confront someone that you feel needs mental health services or needs professional help, right? Because I think that's what people call it. (laughs) Like you need professional help, but (laughs) you need help. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's so cool because it teaches people around you, like people in their system uh, to intervene in a certain way because that I think can be a really powerful influence and motivational interviewing and all that. Oh my God, that sounds awesome. Can they like do that for civilians? I mean, can we just start implementing that now (laughs) with everybody else? 
No, I think it's amazing. Um, and again, I can give you the link to a lot of these things um, after we're done here, just so folks can see it. I think it's an awesome program. Um, and then the third one, uh, again, that comes to mind, uh, initiatives in this area, is actually uh, an initiative that was sponsored by Special Operations Command, which I'd imagine not for the average person, when they think mental health and Department of Defense, they don't immediately think like, oh, I'm sure Special Operations is leading the charge in that regard, but they oh, totally yeah. are. Um, so so uh, I want to say back in about maybe 2011, um, SOCOM, as we call it, Special Operations Command, uh, really wanted to ensure that special operators and their families had the resources they needed to be able to endure like the extreme work pace of Basically, the global war on terror, right? Like uh, deploying a lot, being away a lot, having to train a lot. Um, it can take a toll on even the strongest of our operators. So they rolled out this program called the Preservation of the Force and Family. And since it's so calm, it's spread across several services, not just one. So Air Force, Army, Navy, Marines spread across all of them in terms of uh, special operations. So they embedded uh, specialists like physicians, PAs, medics, PTs, um, athletic trainers, strength coaches, chaplains, psychologists, social workers, like all of these healthcare professionals in a team-based, like integrated care type model within individual units. So these, you know, rough and tumble guys who are used to going out and fighting America's wars frequently don't have to go to some clinic full of strangers and hope for the best in terms of their health care, not to undercut, you know, the clinic, but that's how it, it seemed to be viewed at the time. Instead, they have these internal teams of providers that are with them every day, who they build rapport with, and um, byproduct of that, the providers are aware of everyone's baseline, so to speak, um, in terms of their overall functioning and overall how their families are doing too. So it's easy for them to notice changes in the baseline. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so based on the rapport building and the proximity with the providers, when they notice any changes or any potential difficulties based on what the unit's doing, those providers can then lean forward and intervene before something becomes um, problematic or clinical or however you want to describe it. So it's really neat and innovative program that, again, was started by maybe a. Um, an unexpected um, organization, but it's been so successful in taking care of folks who are in some of our highest risk positions in the military that lots of other organizations in the DOD are trying to emulate it. So, yeah, um, yeah it's pretty cool. That sounds <laughs> awesome. Like, I've always thought that, like, any place that has integrated care or a holistic mm -hmm. approach to healthcare, mind, body, spirit, like everything. And then if all those providers can communicate with each other about a client, like I think that that's yeah. one of the smartest approaches that anybody could take. And it's really nice. Um, I want to work yeah. there. <laughs> I'm not, um, <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> do I have to join the military? <laughs> I don't no, know I no, oh. you do not. Wow, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Because I'm married to an athletic trainer and I'm a licensed professional counselor. So I think that we both fit in there <laughs> at the same awesome. time. Oh, yeah. God, that's so cool. I'm so glad it exists. Um, yeah. Speaking of stigma reduction, I know that something in our kind of off air conversations we were talking about um, or writing back and forth about kind of your approach to stigma and how you prefer to call it something different. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, so not to, to play too much into semantics, but um, I would say in general, stigma is something that gets brought up a lot when folks are like, you know, oh, you're a military psychologist, that must be hard because everybody has trauma and I'm sure they want, don't want to talk to you. Is usually kind of the gist of how people discuss it with me. And I guess backing up from that context, I think about it in a, in a couple different ways. So one, as you've noted in other podcast episodes that you know I've heard you record already, stigma is a pretty widespread issue when it comes to mental health in America. Um, in general, our society, unfortunately, is seems to be a lot more understanding and tolerant of like the tangible kind of ailments, if you will, that we can encounter in our lives, physical, medical, what have you. But when it comes to mental health, folks seem to be concerned or wary or what have you. Um, and being that the military is a microcosm of America, so to speak, of course, yeah, we would also have that, that type of issue too. Um, so the stigma literature, if you will, talks about two different kinds of stigma primarily. So you've got public stigma, like your organizational or societal kind of perception of whatever issue you're focusing on, and then personal stigma, like what degree of that you personally buy into, um, and that resonates for you. So when the public perpetuates kind of that image of mental health is kind of weird and we don't fully understand it yet, um, and then couple that with you know, we also don't fully understand the military, right? Maybe there's some stereotypes about military members and veterans being like wounded, traumatized, suicidal, um, generally unstable, um, all as a result of their service. And we don't really know much about it. When you kind of overlay those two things, um, it doesn't create like an awesome environment for help seeking. <laughs> so um, mm, yeah. rather than yeah, so like rather than overly focus on like, oh my gosh, stigma is this huge barrier, um, you know, especially in the military, oh, especially in the military. I like to focus on like, yeah, it's a concern for all of us, and there are parts of being in the military that make it a little bit more salient than in other circumstances. However, if we all, we like big we, we as are the general public, as, as community members, family members, and definitely other mental health professionals, if we can focus on promoting help seeking overall um, by doing good prevention, doing good outreach, doing good research, and doing good intervention because we're culturally competent and skill-wise competent, we can help mitigate the stigma, change the culture, and just provide good services. So again, it might be kind of a semantic difference to say, like, let's focus on help seeking instead of like quote-unquote stigma reduction <laughs> but, but that's how yeah. I like to to conceptualize it it seems to leave room for a little bit more action yeah no but you know what I agree that it's important to um look at things even the wording of things I think semantics in mental health care at least for me is kind of everything um even you know switching a couple of words around can give a completely different picture about a client or a community or anything else so the use of the word stigma kind of perpetuates it instead of turning it around to what we want it to be which is help seeking yeah like it's definitely a thing that's there but it's not the only thing so <laughs> let's you know talk about ways that we can bring everybody on board taking care of their whole selves, not just their physical selves. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And I, I also kind of worry a little bit about stigma because it sounds like it's one of those flavor of the month kind of things that it's like, it's real big. And <laughs> yeah. like, I think everybody's using it and like hashtag 
stigma this, stigma that. And like, I, I come from an organization that works with a lot of trauma and like traumatized kids. And so we do have a, a mission, like, you know, it's in our values to reduce stigma and stuff like that. So that's why I use it so much, because it's something that I think in, you know, in El Paso with the Mexican culture, it's something that I do have to kind of swim upstream with every day. But I do I do want to consider, you know, changing some of those hashtags <laughs> that I have on like social media, you know, like. Let's let's promote resiliency and look at how strong people are and look at all the other things that are good and all the other resources that people have versus look at all this bad stuff. Um, Guys, let's do it, Crystal. The culture change begins with us. It does. It, it totally does. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Do you have any advice or general recommendations for service members or veterans um, that are listening to this podcast that are a little bit wary about seeking mental health care for themselves or their families? Yeah, so my biggest one would be uh, you're you're not alone. Um, everyone goes through ups and downs, and inherently what we do is difficult. Uh, in general, a lot of times when we're going through challenging uh, times, we're trying our best to be reasonable people, but dealing with very unreasonable situations. And so it's normal for that to cause some kind of internal and external churn. Um, I'd say when you notice those changes, you notice those those difficulties, seek help early, seek help often. Um, and when I say seek help, it doesn't always have to be with someone with like all these initials after their name. Um, talk to a friend. <laughs> That's like the most natural, organic, um, you know, time tested way that we have to work on things. And at best, a lot of us licensed providers are just kind of woeful substitutes of that anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, <that's> um, true. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, just talk to someone that you trust. Um, and that you feel safe with. Um, I know in hearing that, you're like, oh, I'm sure they don't want to hear my problems or they won't know what to say. But odds are you feel weirder about asking than they would feel about, you know, hearing you out. So um, one of my favorite things to talk about with um, folks that I'm engaged in therapy or consultation with is, you know, if you had a friend in this situation, what would you tell them? Odds are you're being harder on yourself than you would be on a friend, and it's not um, necessarily helping the situation. <laughs> so consider being a little bit gentler with yourself and reaching out to someone you trust. Um, if you do that and you're still noticing some changes in your routine, maybe your habits uh, that are lasting more than two weeks, and that initial kind of reach out and engagement for help isn't quite doing enough to overcome those changes, Seek assistance from a professional. And again, in the Department of Defense in particular, there are just so many resources out there that we didn't cover all of them today. But, you know, you have your chaplains, you have your military family life consultants, you potentially have embedded uh, health care providers, you've got primary care, all these different assets, and then also specialty mental health services. So know that they're out there. It's not an inconvenience to use them. We'd rather, again, have you seek that out early and often so that we can keep you fit to fight. Yeah, fit to fight. That's important. So that should be <laughs> like incentive enough, you know, sometimes it's it's hard to think of those things. But I'm glad you, you said those things out loud. And it's true. Like, some things that aren't necessarily labeled as therapy, like are therapeutic. Mm -hmm. So talking to a friend yeah. or 
doing other activities that can be therapeutic. Crystal, I think this is such an important topic. I'm so glad that you're spending time um, focusing on it. Uh, I think we covered a, a really important range of, of subjects in this regard. Um, I definitely maybe want to kind of underscore, again, if you feel like you need help, seek it out. Or if you're not sure if you need help, still ask. <laughs> That's good. Um, and then on the provider side, again, know that we all play a role in improving help seeking and reducing stigma and all of those things. So make sure that you seek out cultural competence training just like you would for any other specialty community that you think you might run into in your practice um, and make sure that you can provide good care. Um, also, not that I'm a recruiter or trying to pick up you and your husband to come work for POTIF or anything like that, <laughs> but um, uh, I think uh, my favorite things about working for the government, so to speak, is that it's really interested in innovation, evidence-based practice, research, all these things. And we do that. We improve and get these awesome programs based on awesome people, you know, working with us or for us and all things. There are opportunities to serve in these programs as a civilian, as a contractor, as active duty. Um, and if you feel like there are things you think you could add to that you feel like should change or improve, by all means, like be a part of the change process. We welcome that. <laughs> this is not a closed system. Um, let's let's all kind of add our, our personal and professional skills to this endeavor and take care of a really important um, population within our society. I appreciate you coming onto the podcast. I am, again, privileged to know you. If you ever want to come back on and talk about something more specific or if you get, you know, feedback or questions, um, after yeah. this interview and you want to answer them for everybody else, by all means, reach out to me and thank you for your service and for all of the things that you do, um, at work and, you know, all of the cool things that you bring to this world. Keep on going. <laughs> Thanks, Crystal. appreciate it. One last really big thank you for Major Amelia Davis. Thank you for your service and thank you for your time and giving us such valuable information about mental health in the military. If you have any questions for Dr. Davis, you can contact me at www.mypodtherapist.com. That is where my blog is housed and several links to my social media sites as well as my podcast site, which is www.throughtheeyesofatherapist.podbean.com. Thank you for listening to Through the Eyes of a Therapist. Until next time.